Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Um, these are my sermon slides, <laughs> so we're going to go old school a little bit again and see how that works out. I want to read for you a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. And I don't have the whole text on a slide, so um, this is a rarity at our church. Usually we project everything on the screen, but if you have a Bible on your phone or if you actually have a paper book Bible, which is awesome, pull that thing out and find 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. I'm going to read out of the NIV. So I'll just give you a minute to find it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to his friends, the church in Corinth, a very important city. And here is what he writes. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, Wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. That's the word of God. I love that passage, and I chose it intentionally because of the setting, the context of our service this morning. In order to make the most sense out of what Paul is writing in this passage of Scripture, it's important to understand the reason he wrote the letter in the first place. Now, most of us, we write letters because we're trying to express our hearts to one another. And almost nobody today actually writes physical letters. But when Jeannie and I were recording, I wrote many, many physical letters on paper And all of them had the purpose of trying to win her heart and hold her heart and make sure she stuck around for me so that we'd get married. And so I was expressing myself. But in this occasion, and often, Paul would write letters to the churches because through the rumor mill, he was hearing things about the church that alarmed him. And because he could not be there in person to pastor them, he wrote letters which would be read out loud with great authority and force. And these letters would have a correcting influence On the church. So let me give you the setting of the church in Corinth that he's writing to. It is only a few years after Jesus or after Paul has established and planted the church in Corinth, but already they were experiencing some really, really serious church problems. It was as if they skipped a couple grades in the school of church issues and they just skipped to the head of the line. They went right to the really big stuff. And so let me me just give you some of the problems that are happening. As we read the, the, the first letter to the Corinthians, you begin to pick up themes of what Paul is addressing. 
One of the big problems was there was no unity in the church. There was a lot of unity among small clusters, but there was no church-wide unity. Every little group had its own loyalty to just itself, and the church was being ripped apart by divisions and factions. There was also a lot of talk about spiritual freedom, but it was talk based on misunderstanding. A lot of people were really abusing the concept of the freedom we have in Christ. And they said to themselves, I'm free in Christ. And what they meant as they said it was, I'm free to do whatever I feel like doing. As a result, they were in a very immoral culture, but the problem was that the immorality of the surrounding city had crept into the church. So that the same social problems you saw in the unbelieving citizens, you also saw among the people of God. So far, does that sound a little bit like the United States? I mean, when you track things like teen pregnancy, sexual promiscuity among teenagers, when you look at divorce rates, when you look at anything, any kind of measure of societal breakdown, now the church has caught up to the world and there is virtually no discernible difference between us and the rest of the world in the way that we choose to live in the moral outworkings of our lives. Where there was sin, and not just casual sin, although I hate to say that. That seems like a weird phrase, but, you know, there's like jaywalking and then there's, there's murder, right? And so um, there were some serious, serious sins going on in the church. And another problem was the leaders of the church completely failed to address the serious sin in their midst. They were doing unspeakable things, and no one in the church was challenging any of these people. They were free to just live as they pleased in the front of everybody, and no one had the courage to say anything on behalf of God and God's people. And finally, um, it's evident that there was really no true love among them. There were lots of shows that looked like love. It was really selfishness masquerading as love. And so because there was so little true love to be found in the church, that was getting in the way of true worship in the church. So you get the picture so far. This is the church in Corinth, only a few years old. They're already experiencing some of these veteran church problems. And so in the midst of all these problems, the advice of Paul, his first exhortation to them is simply this. I forgot how to do oh, There you go. He says, think of what you were, which when you say to somebody, think of what you were, past tense, really what you're saying is remember. Remember who you were and what you were when you were called. So Paul is hearing about all these massive church problems, and his first word out the, the gate is time out. I know you got lots of issues, but before we address every one of those issues individually, let me exhort you to do something. Pause for a second and think back to what you guys were like when you just got started. When everything was clumsy and things didn't work right and you were small and young and inexperienced and making mistakes, but you were full of hope and vision and potential. Do you remember those days? Pause and remember and then look in the mirror of your memory and think about not just how it was like, but think about what you were like when God first called you together as a church. And just in case the years had dulled their memory, he begins to spell out for them. And this is not exactly a page out of the book on flattery, right? I mean, he goes, hey, you guys, do you remember what you were like when I came to Corinth and I found you and God used me to call you together to be a church? Let me describe to you what I saw. Not many of you were wise by human standards. 
Not many of you were influential and not many of you were of noble birth. So when he says not many, there might have been one or two standouts in the crowd. But by and large, this was not a church that would have won anybody's respect in Corinth. It wasn't a who's who. It was a who cares. Like they formed this thing where they put out a sign that said, now meeting in Harvest Committee in Hoffman Estates High School, the church at Corinth. And everyone just went, yawn. Who's there? I haven't heard any of those people. What is this new thing? This was not a think tank. These were not power brokers. Nobody here was a person of influence. No aristocrats, no well-known celebrities, nobody in politics or government. And let me ask you something. If your goal, your mission was to transform a major city in the world of that time, is this the kind of group you would have picked? If God gave you the mission, transform one of the most important cities of the world in your generation, would you have picked people who are not exactly the brightest, who had almost no voice in their town, no influence, no money, who didn't have the right street address, the right lineage, the right last name? Would you have picked the marginal people of the town, the ones who work for 70 other people up the food chain in their company, employee number 25,000, would you pick that guy? Because what's interesting is what Paul says is, when you look back, do you realize that the same church that is old enough, big enough, strong enough to have all these issues started out with a bunch of nobodies, people who had no hope of doing anything significant in their lifetimes, and that's precisely the people that God chose. They're not the ones we would have chosen, but they're the ones God chose. So let me ask you, in the midst of all these problems, why would Paul draw their attention back to their humble beginnings? I mean, in a way, doesn't that actually shoot his own argument in the foot? Uh, the reason you're having all these problems is because we started with a bunch of losers, and what do you expect? That's why you're having all these problems. That would be the worldly logic. When you start with people who are not wise, not influential, not of noble birth, you're going to have a messed up church. So goes the logic. But instead, here's what he says. There was a time when the church was very strong. It was going well. There was excitement in the air. And when the church was at its best, you were at your worst. You were the most pathetic crowd when the church was at its healthiest. And now that you're all too sexy for your shirts, the church is a mess. So he's saying to them, Remember not who you are today when all this stuff has shaped you, but remember who you were when by a miracle God established a church through people like you. In other words, by remembering their humble beginnings, Paul is hoping they would remember something very important about why the church exists at all. Why does the church exist? Another way to ask that question is, what is the purpose of the church or its primary mission in the world? And in answering that question himself, Paul exposes for us, reveals something about the strangeness of the way God chooses things and reveals the reason why he makes choices the way he does. So pretend I just clicked the button. Here's a new slide. I used to be real good at the whole upside down navigation, but I'm a little rusty. Just in case they missed the insult of the first verse, he gives them this. Listen, I know the kind of people you would choose to accomplish this mission, but he, look at what God does. 
And he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. Do you know what that phrase is? The nobodies, the nothings. It's not even worth saying it exists. It's like a wisp. It's gone and no one even misses it. To nullify or bring to nothing the things that are. Now, I used to be a scientist, so I have to do it this way. If you took that verse and you arranged it into a nice pretty table, here's what it might look like. And this might help some of you think through it a little better. On the left column of that table, here's what God chose. On the right side of the column, here's probably what we would choose when we're forming this team to plant a church in one of the most important cities in the world. God chooses the foolish. We would have chosen the wise. God chose the weak. We would have chosen the strong. God chose the lowly and despised. We would have chosen the high and esteemed. How many times have you said something like, dang, if Derek Rose, before he was a bench sitter, um, would have come to our church? Can you? Back in the day, people used to always go, oh, man, if somebody would lead Michael Jordan to Christ, can you imagine? And we used to say stuff like that all the time. What if someone led Madonna at the height of her career to the Lord and she came to the, this big church and, you know, she, she had this platform. And we say things like that all the time. The high and esteemed are who we hope will follow Jesus. Or how about the nobodies and the nothings? That's who God chooses. But we would have chosen the somebodies and the somethings. Now, here's the big question. Why does God stink so much at choosing things? I mean, let's face it. If I gave each of you a mission, assemble your dream team. We're going after the city of Chicago. Enough games. We're sick of it. We're going to kick that city in the butt for Jesus. So I want you to go and assemble a team like the Expendables. Remember when that first trailer came out for Expendables 1? You're like, oh, that's going to be good. I would have paid to watch each one of those guys do their own movie. They're all going to be in one movie. Unfortunately, the movie was a piece of dog poo. But, you know, like in the beginning, you thought, oh, man. This movie is going to rock because it is the ultimate, the dream team. So let me ask you, what kind of characteristics would your dream team have? If you could start Harvest all over, control, alt, delete, everything, and you're starting over with a new group of people. I'm not entirely sure I'd make the cut, but, you know, like, who would you have? You'd have somebody younger, somebody who has more of that, that young, cool pastor's haircut and the skinny jeans and the cool shirt with those weird, and then I'd have to have at least a Celtic tattoo somewhere, and you know, I'm the faux hawk. And what kind of people would you want? You want at least one guy who owns one of the major businesses in town, a small business entrepreneur. You'd want a couple experienced seasoned corporate executive types, and maybe somebody who's semi-famous, and a really, really good set of musicians. I mean, who would you pick? Right? And what's amazing is time and time and time again, whenever God begins an amazing work, like starting a country or establishing a new religion or establishing a church, he begins with the people we would never even, they wouldn't even make it to the audition. You're like, uh, yeah, you got the wrong room. Please go somewhere else. We're looking for winners. And God almost always starts with losers. Now, the reason he does this 
Because it's so counterintuitive to us. Our whole lives are spent trying to go from the left column to the right column. Am I not right? Is that not the quest you have always been on? I'm so sick. I'm, on the, I'm in the middle of it right now. I was so sick of feeling physically weak. And I was getting to that. I'm like, I'm, I've already started waving the white flag and giving up. And I'm not even that old yet. So I began working out because I was tired of living in the left column. I want to move to the right column. I'm reading all the time. Why? Because I don't want to be foolish. I want to be wise. So everything in our lives motivates us to move from the left to the right. But it's the ones on the left that God so consistently uses for his greatest works. And here's the secret, the big answer. Why on earth does God do it this way? What is the method to his madness? And here's a simple answer in verse 29. It's so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That comes not from the NIV. It comes from the ESV, the the English Standard Version, which I think captures the original language much better. The reason he always chooses the weak to do his greatest work is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We have to remember that the central mission of the church, or at least one of the most important missions of the church, is to make God famous, to make him known in the eyes of the world, to lift him up so that he gets all the spotlight, all the glory, all the credit, and we get none of it. The aim of the Christian leader's life should be that we will win many over for Christ. And when we are old and forgotten, no one can even remember our name. Dude, what was the name of that one pastor we had for 45 years? I know it starts with a D. I just remember, like, you know, he was kind of short, sort of Asian looking. But man, what a church. I met Jesus at Harvest. That should be the aim of our lives is not to be in everybody's testimony at the height of the. <laughs> and then when all was lost, Dave came and talked to me. And then he told me, gee, and, and that's what we long for. Oh, please mention my name. Remember that awesome conversation we had under the tree? And remember how you cried and you said like you're going to turn things around. Please mention me in your testimony. I want people to know I changed your life. That, that's our heart sometimes, isn't it? That we want to be remembered. We want to be a part of the story. But what God is saying is, you're really not as important a part of the story as you might imagine. I will use you, but it's me that people have to know. Because last I checked, you can't save anyone, but I can save everyone. Jesus saves We point to the Savior. And that's why knowing us, being impressed by us, achieves very little spiritually for the people who see our church. It is when our church leads them to Christ that something profound will actually happen for the good in their lives. And so the reason that God consistently uses the weak, the foolish, the uninfluential, unimportant, the nobodies, he uses them So that in the end, there is no way for any of them to get the credit. I remember I played competitive tennis when I was in high school. And this is one guy who, you know, like he had really nice gear and everything. And I had kind of a crummy racket at the time. So I said to him, you know, the only reason you're winning is you can afford all this awesome gear. And he goes, all right, shut up. Give me your garbage racket and I'll give you mine. And he spanked me with my garbage racket. 
And what I realized is at that point, I got nothing to say. You can't blame the racket one way or the other because it's not the instrument, it's the player that is being seen today. The racket didn't beat me, the player did. Another way of saying it is, I think in a master musician's hand, even a garage sale instrument can make beautiful music. The word for human being, so that no human being, that word in the Greek is sarx, which translated literally is flesh or meat. And here's what he's saying. I use weak flesh so that at the end, the flesh cannot possibly take credit for what only God himself can accomplish. You've got meat and you've got God. Who should get the credit for the good things that happen? If you saw a tree chopped down in the forest and you saw Zoe standing next to it with an axe, you'd be like, dang. You'd be a little confused, but you'd be very impressed by her. But if you saw me in that same shot, Zoe's holding the axe, but I'm standing next to her, who you assume chopped the tree down? Tell me. Would you be like, wow, Pastor Dave watched Zoe chop that tree? You wouldn't think that for a second, would you? When I'm in the picture, immediately you assume I had the axe in my hand. Zoe was cheering me on. Because the the deed itself is too great for her. And when nobody else is in the picture, you would be like grudgingly giving her the credit. But when I show up in my presence, it's impossible for Zoe to get the credit for chopping that tree down. And that's the scenario that Paul's describing here. When God isn't in the room, everybody else can divvy up all the credit for themselves. Do you remember that story I told you years ago about someone from the third world, a pastor, a Christian leader? He came and and did a tour of this mega church. A host pastor here who pastors a very large church wanted to kind of flex his muscle and show off a little. And he had visited this pastor's small adobe church in the third world. So he took him on a tour of his massive facility. And after everything was done, he showed him the fleet of vans and the, the massive lobby and the waterworks and the sound system and the 8,000-seat auditorium. And after all that, he asked the pastor, so, what do you think? And the third world pastor looks at him and says, this is so convicting, he goes, it's remarkable how much you've managed to accomplish without God. Wow, ouch. Now, that's probably a little harsh. It's not like God was absent, but whenever we're making much of our physical strength, our worldly strength, our resources, and showing off, look at all the stuff we have. You know what we're really saying is, look at what's responsible for our success. We've got everything we need right here. When God exits the scene, everyone else will have to get the credit. But the minute God really shows up in a setting, it's impossible for us to try to pretend we were the ones who did the work. And so the reason that God consistently uses the shabby And the inadequate and insufficient for his great work is so that nobody would ever be tempted to give the credit to that ridiculous and inadequate instrument which he used for his work. Now, that's got to affect the way we analyze churches and it's got to affect the way we set our ambitions for the future of the church. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we're going to start working hard to forget everything we learned And nobody work out, nobody make any more money. Let's just get as weak and pathetic as we can. That's not the the point of this message. And it's certainly not the point of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He's simply saying, 
you have grown. Lots has happened, but you've misplaced the credit. You're under the impression that somehow God got you rolling and you took it from there. And that's why your church is a mess. I'm not suggesting harvest is a mess, but I think we would benefit greatly from remembering the same thing. That when we started, this would have been an amazing day, a record-breaking day. We would have been like, dang, did you see all those people at church on Sunday? How many of you have been around long enough to remember that this attendance would have been mind-blowing? Like, what just happened? Did Willow Creek close down? What, what happened? Do you remember? Some of you old-timers, when we started the church in 1995, there were 15 of us, and the whole church met in Phil Lee's apartment in one small group. Phil, where are you? I, I saw you in here somewhere. Do you remember? For like the first two years, we had the whole church was in the same community group in your living room, you and Sang's apartment. And I remember those days. And I remember as a young pastor having mixed feelings because I was so excited but I was also so frustrated because I saw the potential and it wasn't happening fast enough. That's a young man's disease, isn't it? Oh, you just got to keep going and moving. I miss those days. I miss the purity. I miss the simplicity and the innocence of the relationships we had. We hadn't yet hurt each other that deeply. We hadn't disappointed each other yet. We hadn't made big mistakes. And I miss what it was like when that pathetic band of small people was doing something great in the hands of God. When people look at our church today, many, I've heard comments from many of my colleagues in Chicagoland, they say, you know, Dave, Harvest is the church on many people's lips right now. There are a lot of struggling younger churches that say Harvest is a church to watch if you want to learn a few things about how to do it right. And I'm always a little bit flattered, but a little bit like, oh, don't keep saying that to me. Because right after you're done talking, the devil's going to repeat your words for 24 hours and just going to knock me down. But as they say those things, I'm just wondering, when they look at our church, what do they identify as the source of our strength? What do they identify? When people talk about harvest and if they call it successful, what do they credit for our success such as it is? Some people say, well, they're so adequately funded. They don't have the richest people, but they have generous people. And that's true. You guys give a lot. We are an adequately funded church. And many people point to that and say, if we had their money, we could do their stuff. Others say they have an embarrassment of good leaders. It's, it's an embarrassment of riches. They have too many. It's like they're hogging all the good leaders. Can you give us a few? If we had their leaders, we could do their work. <laughs> and of course, you know, if we had their preacher, man, you know. I'm just kidding, of course. They point to all these things. They have a great ministry center. They have this. They have, and I, I cringe when I hear that. Because what I realize is... Maybe what's happening to us is we've become impressive enough that no one can see God past the trees of our earthly strength. That's scary to think about. Because when people see a church, they will either see God or they will see the instruments God is using. Which one do they see more of? 
Let me ask you, as you dream about the future of our church, or if you're new to our church and you're trying to figure out, do I want to stay around these weirdos or leave? Right? I mean, we are weird. You're asking yourself some questions. What kind of church is this? What's at the soul of this church? Everybody visiting our church and exploring it has a set of metrics in their mind, certain standards that we have to meet or else they will move on. And we have seen many hundreds of people over 20 years try us and move on. And the question I would love to grab them and ask is, what, what quiz did we fail? What measure were you looking for that we didn't have? And what Paul is teaching us is a lot of churches are good at some things and terrible at other things, but every church has to be good at one thing. And the one thing every church has to be good at is magnifying Jesus and making much of him and not so much of themselves. The one thing every church should have in common is that people are not impressed by us, but by God working through us. They should be saying, I can't believe God uses those guys the way he does. What a God they must have to take people like that and do work like this. Now, over time, here's the joy, is we will grow. And we will become, paradoxically, more impressive. But that's why when that's happening, it is so important for us to go back to our roots and remember, this church didn't grow because of us. It grew because of God working through people like us. And when we set our sights on the future, I'm not suggesting we should shoot as low as possible. But when we say things like we want to be really well-funded, well-resourced, have excellence and polish and professionalism in everything. We want the best website, the best podcast, the best preaching, the best facility, the best, 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 ah, the best everything. And when we start saying stuff like that, some of it can be holy. But we better take pause. And make sure we've checked our hearts. Because when your aspirations are only about getting stronger and wiser and more influential and more important and more famous. That very desire so often pushes God out of his own church. Same way that Apple once ousted Steve Jobs. It happens. Companies outgrow their founders But when your founder is God, you should never excuse him from the boardroom. I'll just bring it in for landing this way. I I remember the worries that used to mark the leadership meetings in the beginning of our church. Do you guys remember leaders who've been with us for a while? In those early planning meetings, here's the kind of stuff we used to wring our hands over. Oh, man, it sounds like a great idea, but will anybody show up? I don't know if we're going to have enough people. Um, How are we going to pay for that? We used to ask that question all the time. Uh, How are we going to pay for that? We hardly ever ask that question anymore. Just money's every. So we're like, okay, whatever God called us to do, our people will give adequately. We'll get it done. So we haven't worried that much about money in a very long time. But in those days, man, it was always, how are we going to afford that? It was always because I had some harebrained idea that was going to be very expensive. And it was usually Chris going, dude, how are we going to afford that? Thank God for Chris. He kept us out of the poorhouse. Here's another big question we used to ask. All right, it's a great idea, but who's going to do all that work? We don't have the people, man. We don't have the manpower. Those were the things that stressed us out in the early years of the church. Today, we're a much stronger church by leaps and bounds from those days. I haven't worried about things like that in forever. 
Our programs are always well attended. I'm surprised we have this parenting workshop of some guy from Scottsdale, Arizona, talking on a DVD on a screen, and bam, people show up. That's amazing. I, I walk in kind of wanting to say, oh, I'm sorry, not a lot. And then I'm like, oh, man, it's a full room. I don't understand it, but our stuff is well attended. We pay all our bills on time. We haven't lacked for money. 75% of you are active in doing something at this church. We don't lack in manpower. Even on a day with half our congregation gone, everything gets done. We have enough people to make three full quality praise teams. But I don't want to rest on our laurels and say, wow, look at how far we've come. Because at some level, what makes us a strong church has never changed. And moving forward, the goal must not be to get more and more of the strength we see today, but to cling desperately more and more to the God who made us strong at all. It is to remember what it was like when our whole church fit in Phil's living room and God used that group of ragtag people to produce what I believe is a beautiful, healthy church. And as we dream about what the future might hold, as we plant more and more churches, give birth to new works, spread all over the globe, doing things for the sake of Christ, let's never trust the strength in our hands. But the stronger we get, the more we have to say to God, it's always going to be because you did it. If we ever steal your glory, stop working until we're corrected. That's my prayer. I hope it's yours too. Never allow us to be blessed if we've left you behind in the dust. Because that's the only thing that gets a church's attention is when everything crashes and burns because of our pride. And it's only in the humiliation of failure that church leaders often raise their heads and say, where is God? Let's never forget. Let's do all things well. But let's never forget what makes the church strong. And the last thing I would say then is something I'm not saying from me to you because this needs to be said to me again and again. If God is going to get the glory and the credit for this church, then the one area we must grow the most in is in the area of prayer. We have to grow in prayer as a church because it's in the posture of prayer that we start transferring more of our confidence to him. We depend more on him. and We stop looking around and counting all our assets and bristling with confidence at the strength we have. It's in prayer that we remember who it is who will do all the heavy lifting in our church ministry. So I wanted to take this occasion when we're much smaller than we usually are to remember the coziness of a day that's gone by. For those of you who have seen the other kind of harvest, to experience a little flashback, and let's be still that hungry, that hope-filled, that dependent on God as we were in those early days. I believe that the best years of our church truly are still ahead of us. I think we're going to see some amazing things God will do. But let's just not lose our way as he takes us there. Amen? I want to invite you just to, to bow and pray with me in response. And, you know, much of what was said from the pulpit this morning addresses us as a whole church, but this same message is relevant to each of us at a personal level. And that's why in the text we read this morning, Paul ends it by saying it's because each one of us 
is in Christ because of God. And he is for us our righteousness, our sanctification, our justification and redemption. He's not just doing these things in the church. He's doing these things in you and me. Think back to how clumsy and ignorant and awkward and foolishly idealistic you were when you first began following him. And you actually thought you could change the world because God was so huge in your eyes. You hadn't weathered the storms of terrible disappointment, disillusionment, the failure of the leaders above you who knocked the wind out of you, who made you feel like you can't trust anyone. Do you remember the days before all that pain entered your heart? Before the scales covered your eyes and the hardness settled over your heart? And you really thought that if Jesus would fill you up, he might actually use you to change the world. And remember things you thought would never change in your life? Habits, weaknesses, scars and wounds that you thought would never close up. And over time, Jesus has healed and transformed so much about you. He's doing it all the time. And he's making us stronger. But his invitation this morning is don't ever forget the weakness that is beautiful in his eyes. Because it's in your weakness that his strength is so visible. And you thank him. And you lean on him. And you know that tomorrow is going to be another good day because God's already there. That's our God. That's the story of our lives. And that's the story of our church. With that in mind, let's just go to God and respond in our own way. And just tell him what's on our hearts. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.